Well, good morning, folks. Thanks for bearing with me as I dealt with those technical difficulties. I think you can see me now and hear me now. Um, today, we're continuing in our close reading of the Gospel of Mark, and we've entered into the second half of Mark's Gospel, as I alluded to last week. And we have a, a very interesting uh, situation uh, that that uh, happens, and the geography is important, and the language that's here is important. As, as you recall, we're we're trying to do a literary uh, reading of the Gospel of Mark. That is to say, appreciate Mark's art and understand it as art, and thereby get some insight into into the the, the depth of what he's trying to teach us about who this Jesus is. And I think that's real important for us to remember, because today he gives us some details that uh, uh, that we might just gloss over, but that actually have some significance. Uh, it would have had great significance to his audience, much more so uh, than perhaps to us, uh, because they would have been familiar with a, a lot of these details, more familiar than, than we ourselves are today. And one of those details is just the geographic location where Jesus is. As we talked about before, the first half of his gospel was mostly, in fact, entirely uh, north of of the, the uh, area of Judah, uh, of Jerusalem. It was in Galilee and then in uh, in some portion uh, in the area of the Gentiles of, uh, uh, that uh, was across the sea. And we talked about that being a crossing of the boundaries that Jesus was, was calling Israel to in, in their vocation of being a light to all the nations. And this is something that we're going to see repeatedly. Well, here today we find ourselves uh, with, with uh, the disciples going deeper into uh, the Tetrarchy, the Tetrarchy, the, the kingdom of, of, uh, of, or the province of Palestine was divided by the, the Romans into four Tetrarchs or, or you know, four regions. Each was governed. Um, three of three of them were governed by sons of of Herod the Great. Uh, one of them in Galilee was Herod Antipa, and the other was his brother Philip. And so that's where we are today. Caesarea Philippi was a major Hellenistic city. I'll explain what that means a little more uh, in a moment. Um, but they were so significant that this was one of those cities that had the right to coin money. Now, what's significant, I think, about it was its history. Before Rome had occupied Palestine, uh, the, the region, the town was a, a smaller town named Paneus after uh, the Greek god Pain, uh, Pan. Uh, and there was a grotto, a very famous grotto there. Now, a grotto, I want you to imagine, is a, 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 a beautiful cave and associated gardens around that cave uh, that would be uh, a destination, a destination of pilgrims. And this, this uh, grotto was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. Now, Pan was the Greek god of nature, of the wild. The Pan was the god of shepherds and flocks, of the mountain wilds. And Pan was associated very closely with a very, let's just call it robust sexuality. Uh, and uh, in this region, certainly to Mark's audience, reflected uh, the Herodian 
um, um, movement to embrace the Roman form of Hellenism. What I mean by that, first of all, Herodian is uh, Herod the Great and, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the movement of his sons uh, to embrace a culture that was uh, alien to Judaism, the, the, the Greek culture that had been so well resisted by the Maccabeans and other Jews. Uh, and it was a different way of life. And in many ways, its values uh, were in direct conflict with the, va- the values of Judaism. And we've talked about that resistance. And so the fact that Jesus has taken his ministry, has taken his disciples there, uh, and we tell this story there in this place that is associated with the Greek god Pan, I think is quite significant because it's it's naming a conflict that we're going to see here. Now, what's interesting, I don't want to have us walk over, uh, just uh, move right past the words that Jesus uh, Mark tells us that Jesus was on the way. Uh, he did this teaching on the way, this disciples. Now, that language uh, for us might mean much, uh, not much, if we had uh, not already seen it in Mark's gospel used in a particular way. And if we weren't familiar with the the, uh, the gospel of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, uh, who who announced uh, where it's where we where, it's where we see in, in in Isaiah 43 the 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 uh, the word uh, you know, of evangelion of the good news get you up on the mountain and declare the good news and the good news is that God is preparing the way is announcing the way and as John the baptizer did announced that way in the wilderness a way of your salvation so Jesus was on the way we're going to see uh, that you know for Mark the kingdom of God is found on the way and not beside the way, not after the way, not before the way, but along the way. And it's it's on the journey that we experience the reign of God. And uh, we're going to see this repeatedly, but I, I wanted to uh, make sure we drill down a little bit and remember this. Uh, the way is a path. It's it's a path. And, and Jesus had, Mark had just shared with us Jesus' parable in chapter four of the sower. I want to remind you of that because I think that's in the background of this story here. The sower sows what? The sower sows the word, Jesus said in chapter four, verse 15. He says, these are the ones talking about a certain group of the the disciples, I mean, of the people that Jesus was calling. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When this group hears, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Do you remember that? I think that's sort of the background of the story we're hearing here, an important part. They are along the way. They are on that path. This metaphor is going to appear again and again, whereas the Sea of Galilee was the primary narrative location of of Mark's gospel. The word, uh, the phrase on the way, uh, this this metaphor of their journey uh, along the way will be the narrative location of the rest of Mark's gospel. Um, So on the way teaching them, Jesus suddenly turned around and he interrogated his disciples. And he said, who do people say that I am? And that, of course, is a question that is uh, part of the story, right, that he's telling. But it's also a part, uh, it's also um, a story, a a question for us. And so who do they say that I am is is a question about who do the people of the land I've been been ministering to especially, and who do the, the Jewish authorities say that I am? And also, who do you, how do you 
you know, Dave and Tom and Mitzi and all the rest of, of you and me, who do we say that Jesus is? Mark is asking us. Well, that, that question evokes, uh, for, for, for me at least, the story of Moses that Tom read so beautifully to us this morning, Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, in which Moses pressed to know Yahweh's identity. He said, okay, if, you, if I'm going to do what you're asking me to, you at least need to reveal who you are. I need to know your identity so I can, can be your ambassador. And of course, we get God's famous answer uh, translated into English. I am who I am, or I am who I will be. Uh, God and God's own self-establishing. God is the one who, uh, who is uncreated, who, who is not created by someone else, but simply is, has been is now and will always be and is, is and has chosen to be uh, never to be except with us, as, as Karl Barth reminds us. So I am very significant language. And, and we see that language here is who am I? Well, it's important, I think, because there is an analog here to the story of Moses uh, with regard to the story of Jesus. Moses was summoned into the midst of the wilderness uh, and, and sent back from the wilderness back to Egypt. He was told, go back to Egypt where you've been rescued, from which you've been rescued. I need you to go back and liberate the people whom I have called to be a blessing to all the nations because they're held there in bondage, evil bondage under Pharaoh. Similarly, in analogy, Jesus is about to begin a journey. He's being sent to Jerusalem to liberate those same people from their bondage from our bondage to sin under, in this case, Caesar and the Jewish authorities. And Moses asked, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, Jesus doesn't ask Yahweh who Yahweh is. Jesus asks us who God is. Yahweh's I am who I am gets turned into a question. Who Am I to you before I go on this journey, before we go on this journey together along the way? I need to know what you know. Well, notice that the question about Jesus's identity arose in Mark's gospel earlier. Do you remember when back in chapter six, when we were doing our, our close reading, we spent some time talking about the, the death of John the baptizer, which was inserted into the story in a rather odd place. Uh, and we remember this, Herod the king heard about these things, in other words, the things that Jesus had been doing throughout Galilee, because the name of Jesus had become so well known, these hundreds of thousands of people who were coming out to see him. And, and some folks were saying, well, Jesus uh, is John the baptizer raised from the dead. And, and this is why miraculous powers are at work through him, it says in verse 14. In verse 15, it says, others were saying he is Elijah. Still others are saying he is a prophet, like one of the ancient prophets. But when Herod heard these rumors, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised to life. So for Herod the Great, for Herod the Antipi, rather, uh, Jesus was John the baptizer raised to life. Well, here in the Gospel of Mark, we have the same question. Who is this Jesus? And Jesus asked them this. Who am I? Who do the people say I am, rather? Who do the people say I am? And the disciples gave him a similar report. They say, some say you're John the baptizer. Others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. Of course, that, that begs the question, all right, who, 
will you say I am? Will the disciples say the same thing as the as the people of the land, given that all they had seen? Will they say the same and be aligned with the view of Herod Antipa? Uh, do they get who Jesus is? Do they comprehend the significance of all the wilderness feedings and all the all the teachings and all the um, the, the healings that they have seen? Do they comprehend the identity of the one who's been leading them through the wilderness of Galilee uh, all along the way? Well, Simon Peter steps up to the plate as he often will henceforth and represents all of them and all of us uh, with an answer on our behalf. He says, Jesus, you are the Christus. You are the Messiah. Now, all of us as the readers watching this story unfold can breathe a sigh of relief because we already knew that. Remember in the prologue of Mark in the gospel of Mark chapter one, we were told by Mark that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So we know that finally Peter's got it right. We can, we can take a deep breath and say, finally, good. At least see someone's got in, in, in on the inside information that we have because, uh, because, because we already know that. But the problem is, what does that mean? Jesus was the Messiah. What was the vocation of the Messiah as Peter understood it? What is the vocation of the Messiah as you understand it here and now in your life? When you look for the Messiah, what is the expectation you have of what the Messiah will do for you? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? Well, the whole story here turns on that. You see, it seems that Mark... um, or rather Peter, uh, sees Jesus as certainly more than a prophet. He's the Messiah. But that for Mark, I mean, for Peter means he's the king. He is the, the, the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means, the, the anointed one, the one anointed by God to be to preside over God's people. He's the royal leader who would someday come and restore the political and economic fortunes of Israel. So Israel could be what it was called to be. That's what Mark, uh, rather Peter, seems to presume. Well, it's a surprise then when Jesus immediately and harshly silences Peter. The, the text says that he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone uh, in verse 30. You know, folks, we lose something in our English translation here. The Greek verb that Mark uses is epitomeo, which means to, it, it means uh, the action of a corrective rebuke. He rebukes them. It's the same word that Mark had used only twice before. To describe Jesus's actions, Jesus had silenced, if you remember, he had rebuked the demons when they recognized who he was in the synagogue. And he had rebuked the wind when it was the agent of chaos for them along the Sea of Galilee. He silenced the wind. Now, I want you to think about that. You you have a habit, I'm sure. You've you've been silenced before. Um, I have a worry when I was training my dog, Sadie, who is you might be able to see Sadie, and, and, and she's right behind me right now, hearing me preach about her. Um, uh, I have a word that I use to silence her. When she's about to go into harm's way, very early on, I told her, you know, my biggest fear is that she'd run out into the road and get hit by a car and lose her life. And I and I learned to stop her in her tracks, whatever she's doing, by saying, eh, eh, like that. And immediately that meant Stop what you're doing. Give me your attention. Eyes on me. And then I will give you your next instructions. 
And she's mastered that skill. Uh, I love watching it because I, I, I uh, watching Sajina at work with our youngest kids because she similarly has a word. I mean, I'm talking about it. it doesn't just stop the kids in her tracks. It stops me in her tracks. She, if they're if they're about to do something that will cause harm, if they're about to do something that will that is a manifestation of their tendency to go astray at times, as all children do, she will immediately call them back. She will silence them. She will rebuke them. Correct. She will correct them with a preface. She'll say. Hey, hey, just like that in a media, it's a very sharp expungement of breath. It stops everything and their eyes are on her. She corrects them and then they're able to get back on the right path. Well, that's what Jesus does here. He rebukes them and then he helps them get back on the right path by teaching them. Notice, though, he doesn't simply adopt the Peter's language. Peter had said, you're the Messiah. In, in teaching them who he was, Jesus doesn't say he's the Messiah here. He says instead uh, that he is the human one. He invokes, in other words, a title from uh, the apocalypse of Daniel, written about 200 BC. Uh, he calls himself the human one. In Daniel chapter 7, we read the following. As I continued to watch this night vision of mine, I suddenly saw one like a human being coming with the heavenly clouds. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. Rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All people's nations and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. It will never pass away. His kingdom. Oh, the task you have to take. Oh. Oh. So uh, this this phrase here, the human one, doesn't just appear in the prophet as, uh, of, of uh, prophet Daniel, or rather than the apocalypse of Daniel. It also appears in a, a Jewish writing that is in our our Christian canon and was in the Jewish canon. It was written about the same time as Paul wrote his writings around the 50s, sometime in the mid century, the first century, a famous book uh, that's quoted through, through, you know, quoted by the early church fathers again and again and again um, is is, uh, referred to as for Ezra, but we receive it in the Apocrypha. You're familiar with that? The Apocrypha. Uh, I'll I'll explain what that is in in a few seconds, Uh, but we see it in our book is Second Ezra, Second Ezra. Um, but this is a book that was written, um, as I said, about the same time that there were pogroms happening against the Jews um, in, in throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and, and so too, Daniel was written uh, during the pogrom of, of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes against uh, against the Jews. Something I spoke about when we talked about the beginning of, uh, of the Gospel of Mark. Um, the the book of Second Ezra, by the way, is 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 was quoted by Christopher Columbus uh, as proof of, of of the world's composition when he was appearing to appealing to the Pope uh, for funding. Um, it's uh, the, the the book appears in all the Christian Bibles except the Protestant Bibles because uh, uh, it was. Uh, it, it, we only received it in Latin, and uh, 
and, and when when uh, translating the the Old Testament into German, uh, Martin Luther made the decision to throw out everything from the Bible, the Protestant Bible that he was inventing, uh, that wasn't in the original Hebrew. So all the stuff that we only received in Latin, he threw out, and that's why we have as as Episcopalians in our Bibles, we have what's known as the Apocrypha. We have recovered those readings that are in the Bibles of all the other Christians in the world, except uh, the Western Protestants. Uh, and we call it in a, we put it in a little section called the Apocrypha. And that's where you will find second Ezra. But that's where we see also this, this thing that would have been contemporaneous with Mark's people, with Mark's Christians, this idea of the human one. Who was the human one? Well, in both of these biblical texts, the human one represented authentic human government, government as God desired it, government that in, in both of their apocalypses would oppose the brutal governments of the beasts. Both of them tell stories which in, in which uh, the beasts are the uh, antagonists and the human one judges them and uh, and overcomes them. And in, in their in their stories, the, there are four beasts, and the beasts represent the great uh, empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and in the case of Second Ezra, uh, Rome. And so Jesus invoking the human one is a he's invoking a major symbol, calling himself this. Mark reminding the people of that uh, uh, in a time of 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 uh, a Roman civil war is saying something quite important. Um, so when Peter names Jesus uh, the Messiah and Jesus rebukes him and calls himself the human one, Jesus is invoking a symbol of the one the human one who will preside as though in a courtroom and judge the beasts who will judge the Roman empire and all those who collaborate with him. Uh, so Jesus rebukes him and he corrects him. And, uh, and, he, and he invokes the, the name and the title for himself as the one who will establish a truly human government uh, for all the nations. Well, that's not so bad, but, so Jesus is just, you know, just correcting Peter, but, that, but, but then Jesus continues, the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the legal experts and be killed. And then after three days rise from the dead. Now, I want to draw attention again to a word that we lose in translation. The word that's translated as rejected uh, in the Greek is apodokomozo. It, it has a, a courtroom context. And so what it really literally means is is thrown out after a test by official judges. OK, so he will be rejected. He's saying that Jesus will be tried, convicted and then executed by the Jerusalem authority structure. So that's a, a, a foreshadowing of what is to come, certainly. Uh, but that is very provocative uh, to Peter because it doesn't fit his understanding of who the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one is. Jesus said all this quite openly, and then Peter took him aside. And interestingly enough, Peter began to silence him, to rebuke him. The same verb is used there. Peter rebukes Jesus. You see, for Peter, the idea of Jesus being tried and killed made no sense. For him and for many, the Messiah was a triumphant figure. Imagine our image of George Washington on his famous white steed, Nelson. And the coming of the Messiah meant the throwing off of Roman rule. It meant the restoration of Israel's freedom, Israel's honor as a nation. 
But instead, Jesus is saying the human one necessarily means suffering. Well, why is this so? Well, folks, it has to do, as we're going to find out, and as you already know, with truth. During the trial that's uh, being foreshadowed here, Pilate, that we see in the Gospel of John, uh, is going to say, what is truth? Well, Jesus, John tells us, is the truth. He can speak God's word only, and that word of truth, seeking God's justice for God's created order, speaks a very firm no to all that is false. It can do no other. Jesus is the truth. To to be one with God is to speak the truth. It's to live the truth. So life with God is wholly incompatible with falsehood, with injustice, with evil. It can do no other than speak the truth about the injustice and falsehood it sees. And speaking that word of truth necessarily puts one into conflict. It necessarily condemns those who promote falsehood and injustice especially when it's those words are being spoken, those behaviors performed by those who are entrusted to be stewards of the many blessings God has given all of us. As we have already seen, Jesus was a very harsh critic of the debt code and of the practice of the Sabbath by the Jewish establishment, how they had turned it upside down and used it as as a weapon against the people rather than a blessing, the blessing that God intended. Well, that meant that the human one would inevitably come into fatal conflict with the elders, high priests, and scribes. And so that's why Jesus says this. Well, we see this conflict played out with Peter. First, Peter says Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus rebukes him, corrects him, saying the human one might suffer, must suffer. And then Peter rebukes Jesus, leading Jesus to silence Peter a second time, to rebuke Peter a second time. And this time, he names Peter as Satan's agent. Get behind me, Satan. I would remind you of that gospel context about the sower. The sower sows the word. He's given Peter the word. These are the ones on the way, on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Satan disrupts. God calls, calls us to walk and journey along this way together. And Satan is forever coming along the path, tempting us, taking that word, distorting it, causing us to get off the path. Jesus is saying that's what's happening now with Peter. You see, Jesus, the human one, had to suffer. He had to suffer because God could do no other than to be with us. But to be with us means saying no to our destructive ways, saying no to the falsehood that we tell each other, to the injustices we do to each other. And being with us means saying yes to us by killing our sin, by providing a way through the wilderness, by providing a way by which we might live with God beyond the time and space of our human finitude. That's what Jesus going to Jerusalem is all about. Jesus seems to understand this. So folks, in our lesson today, Jesus teaches us that we, like Peter, can become, well, like an agent of Satan. We can become like Satan when we ourselves reject God's no to us. We can become like Satan when we reject God's yes to us. Authentic humans 
Mark seems to be reminding us, Jesus taught us, authentic humans reach toward the sun like a plant bursting through the soil. I Right outside my window here, I'm looking at this uh, sunflower I have uh, raised from a seed. I've never grown a sunflower before. Many, some, many of you probably have. I, I've been astonished just the way it just leaps into the sky. That's the way God has created us. To it, All the created order leaps towards the sun bursting, reaching for our potential, for, for, for our time to bloom in all of our splendor. Well, when we reject God's no, when God is condemning our falsehood and in our injustice, we choose to stop that leap toward the sun. We choose to stop that growth toward the sun. We ourselves judge God's wisdom, throwing it out after a test. We reject the word of God. But authentic humanity doesn't do that. Authentic humanity, Jesus teaches us, humbles itself so that brothers and sisters might flourish in the garden with us, so that, so that we make space so that others might thrive. This was what, the, what Jesus again and again said, that the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities and the Herodians and the, Jewish author, and, the, and the Roman authorities were not doing. They were not allowing space for others to thrive. So when God says no, hey, every time we occupy the space of another, Every time we annihilate or consume the other, every time we choose falsehood over truth, every time we choose to overwhelm, overwhelm others with the power of our hands and minds, rather than to unite with them through the power of our love, we hear God's no. God's hey. And when we keep going, when we, in spite of hearing that, keep going, well, we're sort of like Sadie ignoring, uh, you know, my eh to her and going into the street. We become at risk in our own flourishing. We, we uh, go into the danger zone. We become uh, like Satan's agents whenever we reject God's no to us. But we also reject God's we do the same when we reject God's yes to us, when we choose, uh, uh, we choose to, to not believe that the, the word that, that God has given, where God has, has accepted us. We, when we do that, we also choose to stop that growth toward the sun. We, when we choose to shrivel, when we choose to die spiritually, when we choose to die physically, refusing the healing word that embraces us instead of, in, in spite of our unacceptability, uh, oh, well, then, then, then we are also uh, rejecting the wisdom of God that sees who we truly are, sees our essential human dignity, even when we ourselves can't see it, and calls us to accept God's love calls us to, in spite of whatever we have done in our lives, what, whatever we think might be an obstacle to being loved, uh, whenever we tell stories that explain our history and the things that have happened to us as the evidence of God's lack of love for us, we are rejecting God's yes to us. And whenever we do that, we similarly are refusing to grow toward the sun. And so my prayer for us today is that each of us will hear God's words to us 
and believe them and accept them and be transformed by them, by the renewing of our mind that is their their purpose. If you are hearing and rejecting God's no to you today, if there's something in your life that you were doing that causes you in your conscience to hear that, eh, I pray that you will listen, stop, turn around, set your eyes on the sun, and then get back on the way of love so that you might grow and flourish the way that God desires. But similarly, if you are hearing and in spite of all your experience rejecting God's yes to you, I pray that this will be the day that changes your life, that somehow God's spirit will burst through all your defenses and cause you to accept God's judgment, that you are indeed God's beloved and that that the power uh, that God has put in you is, is is a word of yes that says you are worthy of life forever with God and that from this day forward, you will choose to stop withering, to stop believing you are unworthy, to stop cowering in the dark corners of the depressions that you nurture and to choose instead today to reach boldly toward the sun so that you might bloom, so that you might prosper in all the splendor that God built into you. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed anointed one. You are the son. You are my destiny. You are the one who speaks the truth about me, that I am your beloved. I pray that each of us will hear that word and grow towards the son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.